0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little sonic symphonies we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Lisa,
1: like to add our of Airlines Airbus
0: A319. There you are. Sitting on a plane, bags are stowed, seats and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions, but the plane is delayed, and you aren't going anywhere anytime soon. An hour passes, then two, then three. And just as everyone starts to feel like they can't take another minute, this happens They will play for you by the composer Dvorak, the string quartet called American. Final
2: movement.
0: Fellow passengers who happen to be members of the Philadelphia Orchestra create what might be called a pop up performance and save the day. Symphonies are all around us. If we're open to them, they will play for us. Musician Joseph Bertolozzi hears music in physical structures, like the Eiffel Tower. So he plays them like a giant percussion set, with drumsticks and mallets. Here he is playing the Mid-Hudson Suspension Bridge in New York. Today on ReSound, we bring you symphony stories found in unusual places, like, say, British supermarkets, Russian cityscapes, and the wilds of the animal kingdom. Stay with us. folk singer-turned-nature recordist Bernie Krause spends his days listening to the natural environment. He has a library of 35,000 hours of nature recordings to show for it. And while doing all that listening, he came up with a theory that animals communicate with each other on their own frequencies or channels. And together, these conversations, like staffs on a score, interact just like a symphony orchestra. And everything is in perfect harmony until we humans start making too much noise. He calls his theory biophony.
3: One evening, I was sitting there listening to these sounds, and it occurred to me that these sounds were kind of symphonic, that all of the voices, all of the insect voices and the mammal voices and the frog voices... All of these critters had found channels to vocalize in without their voices being masked by other creatures.
4: That's the biologist Bernie Krauss. He's describing his theory of biophony. It's literally a combination of biology and symphony. But he wasn't always a scientist. Two decades before he began studying biology, Bernie Krauss was a guitarist and folk singer.
3: After I graduated college, I joined a group called The Weavers, Uh, we introduced a song called Guantanamera.
4: After The Weavers broke up, Krauss moved to California. It was the early 60s and the psychedelic scene was about to break open. Krauss began experimenting with a new electronic keyboard, the Moog synthesizer. In 1967, he and a friend set up a tent at the Monterey Pop Festival, and they sold the Moog to big-name bands
3: like the monkeys and the birds, all animal sounds, uh, uh, the Beatles. We also sold to the Doors and Frank Zappa. But the Moog wasn't easy to use. Because most of these groups were so stoned all the time, they couldn't play the synthesizer. They couldn't figure out how to make it work. Strange
4: days the Moog became so popular, Krauss ended up getting work outside the music scene. He started designing sound for Hollywood movies, like Rosemary's Baby and Apocalypse Now.
1: I love the smell of night napalm in the morning.
3: I did about a third of the music and the helicopter sounds. And also, I got fired eight times.
4: But every time director Francis Ford Coppola fired him, he rehired him for twice the pay.
1: smells like victory.
3: At least you know the risks when you're working with animals.
4: Krauss hadn't spent much time with animals up to this point. But then a friend of his suggested he make a concept album about ecology.
3: I didn't know what ecology was at the time. I thought the wild was the zoo. What did I know?
4: But he ended up making that album and called it In a Wild Sanctuary. It mixed rock music with sounds he recorded at the San Francisco Zoo and the Pacific Ocean.
3: Being out there for the first time with earphones on, that was the moment that I decided I wanted to be outdoors instead of in. And I wanted to figure out a way in my life to do that. However long I was going to live.
4: So Krauss got his PhD in biology and became a bioacoustician, someone who records the sounds of nature. He started by going to far off places like Antarctica, Borneo, and the Amazon.
3: I heard this growl in my headphones. We had kind of sensed that something was following us down the trail anyway because we could smell the urine of the animal. We couldn't hear it or see it, though. But boy, when I set up my mics, I sure heard it. I was frozen solid. It was just terrifying.
4: But Krauss's notion that nature operates on a symphonic spectrum has its critics. Some biologists are skeptical that animals choose to jump onto specific frequencies. And as to whether biophony has practical uses?
3: Well, for one thing, it's being used as an analgesic in medicine uh, to calm patients down, lower their stress levels, wean them off pain medication.
4: Bernie Krauss sees his research as activism. When man-made noises interfere with a segment of the spectrum and suddenly animals can't communicate, they die out. His own sound library reflects the disappearing ecosystem.
3: Over 40% of that collection comes from habitats that are now virtually extinct. Forty percent of that library comes from sounds you can't hear anymore.
4: An example of this is Kraus's recording of Lincoln Meadow at Yuba Pass, California. Here it is before the forest was logged. Listen to Krause's recording one year after logging. The density of the ecosystem has been greatly reduced. Krauss says the mating call of a warbler or the warning call of a cricket is like a soloist in a symphony orchestra.
3: If you think what a musical score looks like, that's the kind of vision that I had in my head as a result of listening to this stuff.
4: But this stuff won't last forever. And Krauss says there's only one way to appreciate what we've got now.
3: Quiet down. Be quiet. And the other thing is, just listen.
0: Biophony was produced by Jill Duboff for Studio 360's Science and Creativity series and originally aired on WNYC in New York. And now from the heart of the jungle to the aisles of the Piggly Wiggly. Composer and radio producer Nina Perry found beauty, musicality and stories in a place that might surprise you, the grocery store. In these shops where most of us rush in and out, heads down, lists in hand, Nina stopped to listen and she heard a supermarket symphony.
2: When we come into work, it's still dark in the morning
5: The night team are finishing off, filling the shop, clearing all the cages off.
1: It's peaceful. And the shop is fairly quiet.
5: So you can gather some of your own thoughts. And it's like you're just waiting.
1: And the lights all mm-hmm. change because we have night lights and then the lights for the show, you see, for the customers. <laughs> we get announced, Can you clear the aisles, please? It's getting it towards seven o'clock.
2: Yeah, I do the newspapers, get them all set out and ready.
1: There is a countdown. And when you hear these announcements, five to seven, five to seven, it's a bit like actors being called to dressing rooms five minutes, five minutes. And then I do chocolates and chewing gum. Four minutes, three minutes.
2: And then, when I've done all that, I go on till.
1: Right, we are stopping the store now, and these shutters go up, so it is very showy, really. You could be at the theatre on Drury Lane, I suppose. <laughs>
2: Yeah, please. Or oh, my granddaughter
1: doing do that if I don't. This is thing to die for, Red Leicester, but it's aged. My name's Michael and I'm 75. I serve on the cheese counter. Well, my favorite cheese, actually, this is the one, we haven't cut any yet, uh, is uh, dolce latte. I don't eat a lot of it myself. We only have it in our house when we're having some friends to dinner. And then a bit gets left over, and my wife says, you're eating it. well, of course I'm eating it. The customers imagine that I've sold cheese all my life, you see, and they think I've worked for Sainsbury's all my life, which I haven't. I've had other lives. And I started working in this supermarket uh, about seven years ago because I was uh, virtually made to retire from what I was doing. And I thought, well, I'm fit. And um, do you need the money or want the money? I suppose, want some extra money. So it's a retirement job. Well, it doesn't make sense, does it, if you're retired? But retirement is not in my vocabulary. People do say to me, why aren't you retired? I say, well, why should I be? <laughs>
6: Go in my, area. my name is Maria. I work in uh, Tesco Kensington. I've worked here for the last 12 and a half years, and uh, I used to be a manager, but now I'm a, I work for stock control. I need to make sure that we don't have any gaps on the shelves. As you see, we've got red labels, which literally telling our customer that um, we're temporarily out of stock. When you're a mum and you're just basically at home, most of your day you've only got your child to speak to. I needed more. I decided it was time for me to go out and start doing some work. I'd look forward to go out shopping because it would take me out of the house. It was a way of interact with people, actually communicate more with people. Yeah, I made a choice that that's what I wanted to do.
5: Generally, like customers ask questions all the time. My name's Bev, and I'm the customer services manager here in Tesco's in Kensington. I look after the customers in the shop to make sure that they can get what they want or if they've got any gripes with anything. Hi, guys. How's things going today? Yeah, what special offers have we got? Old
7: salmon.
5: They're all individual people and they all have their own individual needs. Yeah, Yeah,
6: how's things? Things good, yeah. Some of our customers are uh, like in the situation that I was, and they come to our store to sort make friends and somebody that they can talk to, and uh, not only for the shopping, but for the um, the communication that they obviously don't have being alone at home.
2: Are you? Are you today? I said, how are you today? Fine, I think. You think? Last time you looked in the mirror, yeah? You were fine. Well, things change. That's true. Especially during the course of the day. It can get worse or it can get
1: better. I was an actor when I was 16, and I came to London to study acting. Uh, but uh, my father suggested I get a job in an hotel because you'll need to eat. I fell in love with the job i have been given in a hotel, which was a training manager. So I decided then to pursue a catering career. So I was six years, I was an executive with one company, another six years with another. I worked for Eric D. Morley, so I'm well used to Miss World, Miss England, Miss United Kingdom. I remember one night in Manchester, uh, this driver came and picked me up and he said, where are we off to tonight? I said, I'm having to have dinner with Miss World. He said, oh, that's wonderful. I said, well, not really, because it's my night off and I'd rather be having dinner with my wife. And I thought, I don't want to be an executive anymore. We came back to London and I worked at the Ritz and the Duke's Hotel and then um, six years at the Garrett Club and that's where I was able to do after-theatre suppers. So... There we are. I see the excitement having dinner with Miss World. I see the excitement of meeting the Queen is exactly the same excitement I get. Am I so odd that I get working on the cheese cut?
8: Sauces. What's on offer? Two for three. I find it quite therapeutic to go get my trolley and go round and pick my things. Eggs, this way. (laughs) My name is Pat Brown. I'm the parish priest at the Catholic Church in Pimlico, right in the centre of London. And I'm also the Catholic duty priest at Parliament. Two for a pound, hot cross buns, yeah. Just to have the leisure to speak to people as I meet them. It's always funny because they say, what are you doing here? And I say, well, doing the same you are, i me shopping. They've only seen me, many of them, in church. And they don't think you've got to eat or the fact you might have to shop. And of course, occasionally I have a nice bottle of wine. (laughs) Oh, they say, a (laughs) party.
9: to go. Well, I don't really want to go at the start, because this happens with a lot of things, but then I go and it's actually quite fun. It's like sometimes I don't want to get in the bath, but then I stay in there for ages because I keep wanting to play. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think like what Mum would buy, so I wouldn't really want to really buy what Mum always buys, because she buys things that sometimes I don't really like. If I didn't have a shopping list, I'd probably think first um, dinners because I do still like to have a dinner. Sometimes if I don't have a dinner, I might not be hungry for it, but it feels sometimes a bit odd. Sometimes I can go up to like um, like different um people on the counter, and some can be like really nice. Some will be nice, but they can be sometimes a bit quiet, and they won't talk as much. Because there are some people at the um, counter that are a bit like me, like to talk a lot.
2: Right, darling, you've got six pound forty-six to change. Can I have it one one pound? Please.
10: All
2: right. One, two, three, four.
8: When I was preaching a few years ago, I was trying to get across that our actions and even our moods and our way of approaching the day has an effect on other people. You know, like if you get on the bus and the bus driver's very bad temper and he says, hurry up, come on. That annoys you and you get on and you moan to the persons beside you and you go into work and you moan to them. It's like throwing a pebble into a pool and it goes out and out. It works the other way as well. If somebody's very cheerful, that gets you off to a a good start. So in trying to get this across, um, I mentioned, without mentioning her name, but everybody knew who I was talking about, Julie, at the supermarkets because she's always so cheerful. Hello, love. Everybody's greeted with a smile and a lot of banter. Oh, there's the lovely Julie. You all right, Julie? I've been talking about you. Hi, Mary. Uh, uh, well, most of it. Except the bit about your funeral.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I want to be
8: you want to be cremated, okay. <laughs>
2: oh, I'm going to be a man. Are you? Yeah, when? When? in It's oh, really? brilliant. My name's Julie, and I work for Sainsbury's. With people, I, I won't judge anyone different. I treat everyone the same equally. The way I am with one person is the way i would be with all customers. You know, I'm, I'm quite a happy-go-lucky type person and chatty, and you know, I'll address everyone the same. Not everyone can be friendly. Not everyone's going to be jolly. You know, you don't know what sort of day they've woke up to in the morning. They could have their reasons for being the way they are. You can't judge them on it. I remember once, actually, they were quite posh people, right? A man and a woman. And they'd come into the store this couple of years ago, and I think they'd had some big row. They were really having a big argument. And they'd come to my till, and they are quite a big shop, and, like, again, I was packing and chatting. And then by the time they left, they said, you know what? You have made us feel so good, ''we're going to go home and make love.'' <laughs> People say, how come you're always so happy? I don't know. I'm sure on this States I'm miserable. But I think they would be very rare. It's just the way I am. I like to have a laugh and a joke. You. Do you
6: have
2: No, I
10: don't
2: have an obstacle. <laughs> I don't do cards. <laughs> Not even playing cards. Oh, play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's about my limit and all. <laughs>
8: There is a beauty in someone not just doing a job and, or doing it like a machine grumpily but treating every customer as a unique individual and she seems to know an awful lot of people and she knows them by name and they know her and this is true of many of the other cashiers there in, in the supermarket in Pimlico as well. So that there is a beauty in that and it brings shopping to another level, if you like. A human encounter.
5: This time there you can feel the store getting busier from where it was this morning, so quiet. You can start to hear like children about and the checkouts a lot more busier, you know, so you can start to feel it starting to buzz a bit.
9: Going mm-hmm. around the shop now has actually made my tummy a bit bumbly. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that looks nice.
2: <laughs> I love it. The busier the better. <laughs> give me the cues. Give me the big trolleys. I'm in my glory. Boom, boom, boom! I'll get for it, no sweat.
9: I probably mostly like the sherbet ones. but I don't really have them anymore because so I'm I try to cut down on my sweets. <laughs> They invite you to come and have a look at them because they're all different colours and they say things that you probably sometimes think, ooh, that looks nice.
2: bigger the trolley, the better, come to me, I say. Come to me, I say. Ooh, that looks nice. Come to me, I say
9: power drinks, <laughs> but mummy never really wants me to get them because I have enough power and mummy sometimes thinks when I get home I'll probably go climbing the walls <laughs>
6: When I was a manager, I was a dairy manager. We were having a refit in the store and I was told that on that Sunday uh, to expect a gentleman. And he had 15 of my fridges uh, on wheels, basically. As soon as the customers were gone and the the store was completely shut, um, I got a knock on the door and it was him arriving with all them fridges. And that's the first time I met my future husband-to-be. I've been on my own for three years, uh, at least three years. I had a bad experience, so I really wasn't in the line of look with somebody. But I don't know what happened. It's just when he introduced himself to me and I shaked his hand, I had this really, like, tingly feeling inside me, basically, and I saw cl- it click. To me, it clicked.
8: again, it's about human encounters and relationships and building up relationships. So yeah, there are opportunities there. Maybe somebody I haven't seen in church for a long time, you discover maybe they'd been mugged and um, they're only getting on their feet again or, or they've been in hospital and I didn't know that. Or they were going through a period of doubt about their faith and stayed away for a bit. But they take the moment, they feel they're on neutral ground uh, in the supermarket and you're on neutral ground and very often they'll open up to you easier there than they would within the church building or outside the church building. And you see people having lots of good chats there and have a good old gossip and uh, catching up on the news. She moved house yesterday, but she's kind of forgotten how to get back to it. Did you say 13X? Yeah. Okay, I'll pop around to make sure you got home. She
6: just (laughs) showed it to me. I said, oh, I said it's 13X. Yes. Okay. Thank you
8: very much. Are you in your new place? Yes,
6: I'm very happy there. Thank God. Great.
2: It's gonna be a man. I heard you the other day. It's a boy. It's a boy. I tell you, it will be spot rotten. I just love babies anyway, and to think it's gonna be a part of you, isn't it? It's part of my daughter that was inside me, and now her child. Oh, it's 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 special. It's part of our family. So yeah. How will your troubles start? No, all her troubles start. No. Yeah. No, don't be silly. Yeah. I always swore when I had children I would have more than one because people say, oh, you're so lucky not having brothers and sisters. But then it could be lonely. I was brought up by my mum. I had no dad. I've never had a dad. You just said it first. So I know, but it... I'm there for the birth. I've got to be there forever. I? have always been in Pimlico all my life.
11: <laughs> You'll be there forevermore now.
2: I had my son, which I brought up on my own, and I worked, done cleaning jobs, worked in shops, obviously hours to suit within like nursery, and then when I had my daughter and she was planned and I was with my partner and we have been together for three years, then um, the father, her dad walked out. So I thought, here we go again, I've done it once, I'll do it again. So then I brought her up on my own as well. So I brought them both up and I'm very proud of myself for that because they've not really done bad by it. There's no point letting things get you down.
9: What do you call Postman
2: Pat
10: when
2: he's retired? Alright, I don't know. What do you call Postman Pat when he's retired? I've no idea. Listen, I can't be that bad or he wouldn't keep coming to me. No, no, we love it. I'm always jolly, isn't I? You are. You're right, really. Yeah, of course. I mean, we have a fit when we get the bills. What i you You still have to pay it, though. Exactly.
1: I come here from 7 to 2.30. I'm either going to come here 7 to 2.30 and just serve cheese, and just serve cheese, and just serve cheese, or I'm going to spend 7 to 2.30 making friends, talking to people, and they do become friends. And I was doing this Saturday for my colleague, Peter, and this young man came, he was about 24 eight years of age, and he said, oh, I haven't seen you before, are you new? I said, no, I'm not new, but I don't work Saturdays. Oh, right, so he said, I want some dolce latte. I said, oh, well, you must, that's my favourite. Oh, is it? So now we're in communication, you see. He said, but that piece is too big. But so it doesn't matter, I unwrap it and I'll cut whatever you want whilst I'm unwrapping and cutting the cheese, I'm telling him stories. So I'm telling these stories, and then he he, I said, he said, well, I've half that piece. And I weighed it, and he said, to, how old are you? It was a year ago, and I said, well, I'm going to be 74 next week. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll take the other half. So I weighed the other half, put it into a bag, and he went off, and 20 minutes later, he was back at the counter. I said, oh, have you... Have you forgotten something? And he said, no, but the I've spoken with the manager, and he said, it's all right, doing what I'm going to do. I said, what's that? He said, the other half is my present for you. Now, I get upset, and I'd, I'd never mind getting upset. Barbara Cook uh, sang a song written by her pianist, he's now dead, I never knew that men could cry. So I don't mind. I'm in with them who can cry. And um, I get upset because um, I'd never met this young man before. And out of the blue, he did this for me, and possibly two cousins before that. Maybe they were rude to me. I don't know.
5: So on an evening, so 10 o'clock, the majority of the day staff or evening staff have gone home and then the night team come in and uh, they've got the shop to fill for um, the customers ready for the following morning.
2: There's always people in the store, although it's not customers, you know, you've got plenty of staff about filling up shelves from all night long. They've got stories they can tell, so it's always someone to have a laugh and a chat and a joke with. When you got the time.
5: Hi Mathan. you all right? What have you got planned for tonight?
12: Yeah, after break I do fill the
2: crepes yep. and do the water and promise me, You're doing
5: the promotion then tonight, yeah, yeah getting them ready. Okay, okay then, yeah. You alright, yeah? yeah? Good man, yeah. good man.
1: If you went to see a show, the orchestra plays the overture, and the curtain goes up and then you get a little song and then you get a bigger song and then you get the chorus, kind of for the interval, and you go, wow! And then it all starts all over again.
2: No, I do, I love my job. Because every day is different.
8: You've people of all colours, all classes, you've the rich and the poor. We're all there for the same purpose. And we can just stick to that purpose alone, but we find that we're often challenged to move out beyond that. To engage with people at another level.
1: And there's loads of beauty, these are beautiful people. We don't all get on, and we can't all like the same things, but, boy, we're we're absolutely fabulous, aren't we? Anne Frank said, I do believe everyone is good at heart. Well, maybe some hearts you have to dig a bit deeper (laughs) to find out. is in the eye of the beholder and it's there if you want to find it.
2: You know, I always think there's something round the corner, it's got to get better, can't get any worse, it gets better. I mean, I've struggled this month, it's been a killer. I mean, money-wise, I'm skint, brassic, but it's payday tomorrow, so, hey, we're all right. (laughs) That's what I mean, you know, always something comes up.
0: Supermarket Symphony Produced and composed by Nina Perry for Falling Tree Productions and BBC Radio Four. Send us your songs. Allegro, Adagio, Piano, or Forte can all be sent to Resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Picture this, a Soviet musician standing on top of a building in Moscow in 1922, just five years after the October Revolution, the city at his feet. He's holding giant red and blue flags in his hands and is poised to conduct a symphony with the city. On this day, there's accidental music, cars going by, a parade passing through, and there's planned music, people waiting for their cue to sound Navy ship sirens, cannons, the foghorns of the entire Soviet flotilla in the Caspian Sea. The conductor on top of the building is an avant-garde and largely unknown musician, which prompted producer Charles Maines to find out more.
11: So here's what I know. In November of 1923, a man named Arsenio Vramov will climb onto a rooftop in central Moscow. He will be holding two flags. But the day will be November 7th and the Soviet Union, the USSR, will be celebrating its sixth anniversary, the birthday of the one and only Bolshevik revolution. This man, Avramov, is a communist. He's also a composer of music. And there, on this roof near the Kremlin, he will link the two with what might sound like a strange idea. He will conduct a symphony made up of an entire city. He will call this symphony the Symphony of Sirens. Let's be clear, this isn't his first time, but it will be his most important attempt so far Soviet big leagues, so to speak. So, this is what I know about Aramov. This is all I know, and I know what I know from a different man, the man I'm going to see now. His name is Andrei Smirnov. He is a man who studies these things, a man who writes about these things. He is a man who can answer what have clearly now become our common questions. Or so I thought, even Smirnov said it was impossible to classify Avramov. He told me Avramov was from a Cossack family and had worked for the circus. He was a fountain of ideas, a ladies man, and if he couldn't be pinned down in his personal life it was even more so with his work.
12: In one sense, they call him a composer. Yes, he was a composer. He studied music for a few years.
13: But I, like most people
12: interested in Avramov, know very little about his music, because almost none of it survived. So you could say there was this split between his experiments, his ideas about the future of music, music that was never written down, and the music he made to survive, the music he made to make money. So to talk about what kind of music he wrote or would have written if that music would have survived, Well, we just don't know. So, yes, he's a composer, but he's a composer based on myth.
11: The myth, in part, was based on a flair for the dramatic. Early on, he would nicknamed himself Rev Ars Avra, the revolution of Arsenio Vramov. He had friends, too. Poets, engineers, musicians, cinematographers. In the first decades of the 20th century, they dreamed up ideas about the future. With the arrival of the revolution, Avramov and the others set out to turn them into reality, new art for a new world, with support, Smirnov told me, from the Soviet
13: elite.
12: He had very strong support from on high. He had support from Trotsky, and as far as I know, Lenin supported him, or at least he tolerated it all. He tolerated this culture of crazies as part of creating this new future. These artists, avant-gardists, and poets would teach the peasants and workers about the future of art. Along
11: the way, Avramov would develop far-reaching theories that would sketch out the concepts of electronic music biomechanics, early use of sound in cinema, and then there was the symphony of sirens, of Rama's music of the future, the reason I'd come. Archival footage of parades from Red Square that day in November 1923 showed clear skies, a cold fall day. It was the first time, apparently, the Kremlin had been filmed from an airplane. Going through the tape, I couldn't find any evidence of Avramov. But the irony, Smirnov told me, was that the pilot may have been the only one who could make sense of Avramov's performance below.
13: The performance of the symphony
12: went largely unnoticed because demonstrations were going on at the same time on Red Square, airplanes were flying overhead, and most people probably didn't realize the sirens were their own event. Moscow is a big city, but even for the people who were there, the sound was so loud it blew them off their feet. So the performers didn't understand, those who were there to listen, couldn't hear a thing. And nobody had even the slightest understanding of what was going
13: on.
11: I'd learned one other detail that day. Although no recordings of the 1923 performance existed, a young composer in St. Petersburg had staged a Ramos symphony just a few years back. I bought a ticket and caught the first train out of town.
14: Это за пределы Петропавловки. Это это не маленькое пространство, да? Но это ничтожное пространство по сравнению с тем, какое пространство использовала Враама.
11: I tracked down Sergei Hismatov in the Peter Paul Fortress, where he'd played a recording of the sirens to an unsuspecting public. His told me that Aramov believed every city had its own symphony. For St. Petersburg, Sergei had constructed his version according to Aramov's own notes from the 1923
14: score. With the Symphony of Sirens, a detailed description remains, so we can read it and hear what it might have sounded like in our heads. It tells us the order of everything. When to turn on the sirens? when the cannons should fire, what should go after what. It's all spelled out and written down clearly. And it's obvious why Avramov did it this way. So that the symphony could be played not only by musicians, but by any person who knew how to read.
11: His mod of spliced together sounds beginning with Avrama's so-called Magistral, a set of steam whistle sirens constructed to play the workers' hymn, the Internazionale. Then he added revolutionary choirs, then planes, horns, whistles, machine guns, more horns, soldiers. You get the idea. Collectively, they formed a sort of industrial hymn to Soviet achievement, with the city united as audience, performer, and stage. In Avramov's telling, the siren call to work, once so oppressive, had become something to celebrate in the worker's state. It was the music of the future, signalled by the cannon's roar.
14: During the performance of the sirens, Avramov was up on the rooftop with the flags, telling the cannons when to fire. One, two, three siren horns were to sound off after the firing of the first cannon. Each siren a little different in tone. And then this triumphant sonar was to ring out for another three minutes accompanied by bells.
11: It was loud, his have conceded, and the sirens scared the tourists. We continued our walk around Peter Paul Fortress when unexpectedly we came across an exhibit for the American composer John Cage. An avant-garde artist who'd heard music and the sounds of the environment around him. To my mind, Cage was Avramov, born a few years later and with a different passport. The coincidence was odd. We entered and found Elena Nikolaevna. American. It doesn't move me, she said. In her view, Cage's biggest defense was his most famous work, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, in which no notes are played for that duration. The song consists of whatever sounds are around you at that moment.
13: Elena Nikolaevna had lasted
11: four minutes before she gave up. Better they pay me 150 rubles, she said. I suggested there might be other American composers more pleasing to her tastes. No, thank you, she said. Not if that meant more the likes of John Cage. But Cage's ideas weren't new, I mentioned. The Russian avant-garde had explored these same ideas in the 20s. Uh, uh, Kismarov told her about Avramo's idea, about the symphony of sirens, the symphony for every city.
2: symphony.
11: Yes, she said. Petersburg sings.
2: Our
11: city is a symphony. As if it was the most obvious
14: thing she'd ever heard. Back in Moscow,
11: I found myself reviewing the archival tapes from Red Square again. I still couldn't find Avramov, but this time I was struck by something else, a simple idea, really. You can never go back to the beginning. The faces on Red Square that day were full of excitement for a new country. There were literally boys on bicycles, but soon they would grow up, go to war, and I couldn't help but think that many wouldn't return. For Avramov, November 1923 was the last time he would attempt his Symphony of Sirens. He didn't fall victim to the Soviet repressions, and he didn't die fighting the Nazis. According to Andrei Smirnov, Avramov and others from the avant-garde—they were just forgotten. The country grew up, and the wild ambitions of the 1920s gave way to Soviet officialdom, stagnation, and ultimately cynicism.
13: The
12: problem isn't just that the majority of the public doesn't know about it. It's that they don't know that it even could exist. Russians were convinced long ago that the Soviet Union could not produce anything, that everything good was in the West and all we could do was make bad copies of everything. But it's not like that. And the history of the 20s and 30s really proves it. But this doubt that Russians have in themselves looms large. That's how we were raised. Hopefully, someday it will change.
11: That night, fireworks rang out over cities all across Russia. It was a holiday, I'd almost forgotten. Avramov thought music was the ultimate communal experience, and it was hard not to agree. Here we all were looking skyward at the drums. But if I closed my eyes and listened carefully, I could hear a car alarm, steps on pavement, laughter. Then I imagined other parts of the city chiming in, crowds gathered in protests, Trains, racing in the tunnels, Moscow's never-ending traffic. Just the hum and din of an average day in the city. You didn't have to like Abraham's music of the future to know it was happening. And if I couldn't find the man, well, it was comforting to know the music had never left.
0: Symphony of Sirens was produced by Charles Maines. To hear more of his work, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Every symphony has its own character, mood, and feel determined at least partly by the key it's written in. Canadian producer Paolo Pietropaolo has thought a lot about this and has gone as far as to ascribe a detailed list of personality traits to each key. Here's his loving, playful portrait of D minor, the Ice Queen.
7: No one can resist D-minor's charms. She's sexy. And mysterious. There's a glint in her dark, sultry eyes. It's advisable to treat her with care because she can turn on you in a split second. Nobody messes with D minor. She's beautiful. But dangerous. Like quicksilver. Like ice. But spare a kind thought for her. D minor is very much alone. Her bleak history consumes her as she gazes out at a wintry landscape from the highest tower in her empty castle. She shivers, wrapped in velvet robes, trying to keep out the cold. She's been forsaken by everyone she loved. Whatever hope or innocence she once possessed has withered away. D minor, is the saddest key. People weep instantly when they hear her story. For such a sweet maiden to have had her hopes and dreams so cruelly dashed by this pitiless world. Now her heart is desolate. D-minor is despondent, and she wants everyone to share in her misery. No one should be surprised at her vengeful streak. Hell hath no fury like D-minor scorned. The world has betrayed her. Her wrath knows no limits. She will hunt you down and she will show no mercy. So run, run away. D minor is coming for all of us, and she will stop at nothing.
0: The Ice Queen was produced by Paolo Pietro Paolo with Denise Ball for the signature series on CBC Music. Find links to The Mystic, F sharp major, The Handsome Rogue, E minor, or The Good Woman, A flat major, among others at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Throughout the show, we've heard music composed from everyday objects, including typewriters from the Boston Typewriter Orchestra, a song composed from a single beep on a subway train by Ari Goldberg-Safer, and of course the classic Fugue in D minor played on wine glasses. Do you know of a good unconventional symphony? Send it to us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. We'll go out on a song composed completely of bicycle parts from Chicago's own Schwinn Tonation. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. Today's episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear nearly 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with LEAD funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.